Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today it's all about pressure and glory as Liverpool edge past Chelsea to win the Carabao Cup. The pressure is also back on Eric Ten Hag after defeat against Fulham and it was a glorious Saturday for Arsenal and Crystal Palace. We'll also be chatting scraps on the pitch and finding out which manager described playing Brentford as like visiting the dentist. And joining me for all that, we've got two of the most glorious football writers in the land, Alison Rudd and Tom Allnut, and... A former footballer who knows a thing or two about pressure, having scored the winning penalty in a shootout in the final of the prestigious Dallas Cup in 2002 for Nottingham Forest's under-19s. Gregor Robertson, how have you kept this from us? How, is it, how have we got to nearly March without this being the best fact about your career? That's your research, Tom. The winning pen. Yes. I mean, I didn't ever think I'd be on here talking about a winning penalty kick in uh, a youth tournament. It was a prestigious tournament, you're right. Uh, yeah, we went to the final, played Dallas, Dallas, the hosts in the final, yeah, and uh, stepped up. So stepped were you up fifth, the, fifth pin, fourth fifth pin? You went, you bloody hell! I mate. always picked fifth, yeah. You Sometimes always, I didn't get one. That meant I didn't get one. But you always fancied yourself as fifth. Alison, yeah. I'm shocked, aren't you? I didn't see this in his in his locker at all. all He's icy cold. Come all on. those kind <laughs> of chats about you know not laying the ball back and wrapped with self doubt. Oh, come on, that was once. That was just like, that was a little insight into the, the Fan- mindset. You fancied know? yourself as fifth penalty. Taker. Do you know what? I, I, where, I, did you, where did you go? Top bin. Yeah, top right. But I always remember I didn't see it hit the net. I knew it was in, and I turned away and like you turned like... away before you even <laughs> saw it go in. Uh, it's the truth. There's not been many. You know, I didn't take many penalty kicks, but I do remember that you put just putting it to that side. I didn't have to look. I was in. You knew and you'd won it. It was like Van Dyke. Everybody was swarming on top of me. Great memories, Tom. Thanks for bringing that up. Fifth <laughs> <laughs> pen's a bit of a grey area, isn't it? Because sometimes it's the one that you really rely on, and sometimes maybe it's the one that you're sort of hoping doesn't have to take one. Which one? Were yeah, you? I don't know. I don't know why I always picked the fifth. I think, I think, I did go. For, I probably just wanted the the glory. But you're right. It and could be it. the pressure. <laughs> I did get the glory though, so it worked out in the end. Amazing. Well, there you go. From one defender with a moment of glory in a final to another, and Virgil Van Dijk and his winner for Liverpool. Now, on Thursday's show, Gregor and Martin and James Gearbrand hinted that this game might be nil-nil, while I fought back and said it was going to be a thriller. 
which just goes to show listeners that you can both be right because it was an incredibly good game I thought whilst also finishing nil-nil in normal time now we've got a Liverpool fan in here as well as well as a journalist who was there in Tom Allnut so Gregor I'm going to start with you with a simple question do Liverpool deserve to win yes that pause was slightly too long wasn't it was it? quite long it's quite long they did they did I mean look if you you look at the XG and you look at how many probably the quality of the chances created Chelsea probably edged it but for the kind of all the traits that ultimately win you win your tournaments and make you successful like the fight and the hunger and the drive and all the all the sort of wonder of seeing these kids step off the bench and you know play a part so you're saying they deserved it from a narrative point of view not necessarily the footballing side both but narrative's part of it. Narrative influenced the game. I think you saw... Yeah, well, now we know you're an egomaniac who goes to the fifth <laughs> penalty kick. I know. We know that. It's, it influences the game. You saw them come on and they had the energy and you saw Chelsea wilt. And it's not because of the, the names on their back or the, the ridiculously high numbers on their shirts. It's because they had energy mm. and uh, fearlessness. And that can always be a bit of a cliche. You know, think, well, why, you know, what does fearlessness mean? It just means they they haven't they haven't messed up enough to... To play with caution, they've never. It's, they, they have no. The, the fear is kind of is a lack of caution. That's what it is really. And they there was a moment in the in extra time where uh, I think it was a corner. He got he got the ball from the goalkeeper and turned in between two Chelsea midfielders, like and raced through the centre of the pitch. And you just thought like, or even when Gerald Quanza came on and his first touch slightly too heavy at his feet, and he was being closed down and he just chopped inside. Uh, I think it was maybe Cole Palmer. Just like that was fearlessness. Yeah. So all the, all of that, I think, contributed to to Liverpool deserving to win this game. We'll come back to the kids and some of that fearlessness a bit later. But Tom, you were there at Wembley. Would you agree with Gregor's assessment? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I thought Liverpool were much the better team in the first kind of half an hour. But in the second half, I, I really thought that substitution they had to make earlier when Gravenberch went off injured, and they basically had to make three changes: push Bradley up, you know, further forward. Gomez came in at right back. Elliot then dropped into midfield, you know, and suddenly the team I just thought didn't quite gel there, and, and you could see that Liverpool were suddenly a bit more disjointed. And I actually thought in the second half, I thought there in the stadium it felt like to me like Chelsea were going to win it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? We were discussing yesterday because I was editing and we were talking about potential pieces, and you were talking about maybe writing about Chelsea's midfield and Enzo, and you actually came back and said, "Hang on, I think Chelsea are going to win." So yeah. let's, let's, I mean, let's, the, let's not get carried away with yeah. whatever. Topic because in we're the first half, about. it felt like Liverpool were going to win. So it felt like you were going to write something, maybe you know, to do with. Chelsea defeat but, but increasingly in the second half I felt in the stadium and, and Paul Joyce sitting next to me we both felt that Chelsea were, were gaining in belief gaining momentum they created some really good chances yeah. you know and, and actually towards the end of the game as well there were moments towards the end of the game yeah. I mean Gallagher had two really good ones yeah. I can't remember if that was extra time or the second half and it, Pochettino afterwards I think his real disappointment was with how Chelsea played an extra time you know because I think he felt that they had the game where they wanted it was right in their grasp and that actually an extra time they kind of let Liverpool back in. And whether that was a psychological thing, because suddenly Liverpool were playing all these kids and they thought, blimey, we could, we could lose this against a, you know, a bunch of reserves. Or whether it was a fitness thing, I don't know. Um, he but they said had also it. that they were, looked like they were playing for penalties a little bit. He obviously. said they looked like they were playing for penalties, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he sort of said, I don't know if that was a mentality thing or, 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 or a fitness thing. But it did feel like Liverpool were the better team in extra time. But, but I actually thought in the second half, I thought Chelsea came on strong. And there wasn't much in it. It was, it was a funny game. It kind of went backwards and forwards. And, and that was why it was so entertaining to watch, because mm. there were chances for, for both teams. I mean, I guess overall, you'd probably say maybe Liverpool just about deserved to win it. But 
if it had gone to penalties and and Chelsea had won, I don't think it would. I don't think anyone would have said that was a that was a robbery. You know, mm. personally, I didn't, that's not how I saw it. And, I mean, it's interesting the fearless thing because I was sort of looking at it and thinking, if this goes to penalties, Liverpool haven't got Allison and they've got a bunch of 18-year-olds here. Like, And it, it felt to me maybe in the penalty shootout, I don't know, this is where the kind of fearless thing versus the sort of nervousness comes in. I mean, you know, the penalty shootout, Gregor, maybe you can tell me. Like, <laughs> is, it, is it, as a kid, are you better off taking a penalty or are you... Are you, are you I mean, that would, have been a huge, that would have been a huge moment for, for any of them who have taken it. But you're absolutely right. You look look to Liverpool's team and thought, who's going to take penalty kicks mm. here? But Gallagher was brilliant. He was outstanding in the game. Mm. Made some great saves. And that one where he, where he raced off his line to to block uh, Conor Gallagher as well huge moments he had some huge moments in the and game and that save in the first half to Palmer wasn't it when he had the yeah. sort of six, seven yards out yeah. it was a great save yeah. well we've held off we've held her off as long as we could we've talked about <laughs> the game in a rounded way but we have to come to Alison Rudd and I'm going to do so in a nice way because I'm going to before we hear from you today we're going to hear from you last week on a certain Liverpool player you have to meet the man to realise what an impact he probably has as captain of that team he has the most it, the hugest of auras but he just exudes calm and seriousness. And you you can imagine being in the dressing room or walking out with him and having concerns about whatever the concerns might be, too many young players in the team perhaps, or and him being able to convince everybody, don't worry, we've got this. The him, of course, being Virgil van Dijk. Alison, you said it all already before, they even, <laughs> before he even steps up with those worries about those young kids. Now, I wanted to leap off that point and talk about Virgil van Dijk, but also get your view as a Liverpool fan. Watching that game, were you in camp van Dijk? What a hero, what a colossal leader of men. Or were you in camp, God, we've got loads of kids, aren't they brilliant? Pick one. Oh, well, Virgil camp, if I have to pick one. If you have to but pick one. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not. But, but I, if, if I'm going to be completely honest, which I always am on this podcast, and I probably shouldn't be, but I did spend the game watched it as a family and I did spend the game saying quite a lot it's okay Virgil it's okay Virgil's on the pitch it's okay because my son had I'm going to need your son to ratify that as well I think just my youngest son had quoted in a taking the piss sense um a tweet I'd I'd retweeted a clip from the podcast from last week and also I think I'd retweeted uh, a piece from my Liverpool report last week in which I'd the, the, the clip that was put on the tweet was the sky could fall in or something and Virgil van Dijk would, would remain completely calm and so my son read this out from his phone in a sort of piss takey mum you go over the top too much <laughs> sort of way but I kept quoting it back to him during the match I was saying you see you see it doesn't matter that everything's gone wrong injury wise for Liverpool it doesn't matter though without Mo Salah, without Darwin Nunes, without a decent midfield. It doesn't matter because Virgil's there. Look at him, just look at him. And it felt, and it did indeed unfold like that. So he scored twice, once once disallowed. And it did feel like there was a majesty to the goal. So it felt very natural. I, I accept everything Thomas said about Chelsea having periods where they played well. But there was, they were never looked magisterial, ever. And Van Dyke brought majesty to the Liverpool team. The best line written all Sunday was from Tom Olnert, where he said there were moments when Van Dyke looked like an uncomfortable dad at a stag do because they were so young around him. <laughs> and it was slightly incongruous, that level of 
that level of majesty compared to these very young <laughs> kids with very little first team experience it's not it's not their age necessarily it's just you know they they've played barely seconds minutes for liverpool and then they're piling on top of them. And, yeah, <laughs> the and it, it looked, it looked, it looked and the, but but that that gave away a lot, didn't it? Because they felt comfortable ruffling his hair and hugging him. He's a father figure amongst the players, and he he said beforehand he felt it was his job to make sure anyone who was uh, relatively new having to come into the team because of the the number of injuries. He it was his role, his job to make sure they felt confident and comfortable, and he had their back and. It was important to him to say the right things to them, to encourage them, but not overhype them. And I honestly, I can't think how you could, I'd like to, you to try, the three of you. Is there something you could say about Van Dyke that he did incorrectly or was a mistake or didn't get quite right during the entire afternoon, including the celebrations? No, I, I doubt you can. Tom, you were there. Give it a go. Think of anything? Well, he headed in a goal when, you know, after a foul. Which yeah. Was, yeah. Sort of <laughs> <completely> <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah, he really overly <laughs> celebrated that when he should have, you know, just kept his powder dry. I think that was a bit embarrassing. Um, very quickly on the goal, Gregor, just from a defensive point of view on Chelsea's side, I thought it was interesting the Decisi and uh, Mudrick. Is it Mudrick at the front post who's got to attack that ball or is it as has he lost his man? I think it's a bit of both, but uh, I think it's, easy, it's easier for Decisi to lose. Van Dyke than it was for Mudrick not just to take a step forward and attack mm. it, attack that ball at, his, at yeah. the right height. Yeah. He waited for it. He like he was bouncing on his toes. Mm. You know, it was just not a defender sort of instinct. Uh, and you saw the despair. I think Chalaba just come on. It's like throwing his hands up. I cannot believe that has just happened. Um, just finally on like uh, there is nothing better than seeing like loads of academy kids getting getting on the pitch like this. Yeah. It, was, it was a joy to watch. And I, I, I say this every available opportunity. No matter what club you're at, at whatever level, it is precious having these guys who stepped up from the academy. It gives like an energy. It energises the, the experienced players around them. It it strengthens the bond between the, the team and the supporters. It does so much for the, for a team. And the thing that we're kind of overlooking here is because of Chelsea's one billion pound spend, is that they had a lot of that and they burned it. Mm. It's like that's that's almost for me the biggest travesty in all of this for Chelsea is that they actually have the best academy in the country, or they have had one of them for a long, long time, and for a long time none of them got a look in, and then when they did, they started flogging them all. It's an absolute travesty. Yeah, well, I mean that's slightly the point of um, our colleague Martin Samuel's piece um, that you can read on the website now. Liverpool are a true team, Chelsea just an illusion of one, but. And, you know, the Academy Kids is something that a lot of listeners have been in touch with me about, Tony um, McMullen in particular, talking about the excitement of seeing that. Tom, linking that to your piece on Chelsea then, because, you 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 know, you've said already and you felt when we were talking after the game that there were some positives there, but maybe that slightly some of the points in your piece do link to Gregor's idea as well. Yeah, I mean, it's quite fashionable, I think, these days for clubs to go against the kind of continuity model. You know, we've we've seen it work. You know, Chelsea have, have it's worked for them for a long time, chopping and changing managers every couple of years. You know, windy trophies. Real Madrid have done it. Bayern Munich are doing it now. You know, and, and and you can win silverware that way. But I think what Liverpool is a real testament to is is when you have a system, when you have a strategy, a clear plan, um, a coach that kind of you know imbues trust in, in young players 
what it does is it almost takes the emphasis away from the individual youngster, right? So when they come on, you're not thinking, is he good enough? Is, is he going to play? Can, can he sort of show his potential? Is he, is he uh, too nervous? They just slot in, you know, they slot in they, and they know what they've got to do and they understand their role. And he looks like Connor Bradley, you know, I mean, he didn't kind of come on. So I think, and he came off at 70 minutes or something, you know, so, but actually for the first kind of half an hour, he was the best player on the pitch. Like he was giving Chilwell absolute you know, nightmare down that side, you know, and it, it's that kind of thing where it's, it's not a coincidence that a club like Liverpool, you get a 19 year old who goes in and just looks, looks like everything's natural, everything's normal. If you have a club like Chelsea, you get these youngsters go in and they look lost. They look like they're disorientated. And that comes from the fact that there's no continuity, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. And I think what Chelsea, you know, you could see yesterday, and I personally have watched Chelsea a fair bit in the last few weeks. Every time I watch them, I think there is something there. Like there is, you can see players sort of doing good things in, in moments. And there was, a, there was a moment yesterday where, where Cole Palmer kind of played the through ball through to, it must have been Gallagher, I think. And he kind of just dropped to his knees and was almost just sort of praying, like begging him to finish, you know. And, and there is that kind of sense that there are like four or five players, I think, on the pitch for Chelsea. They can build something around. Pochettino could build something around. But the problem they have is that the whole thing is distracted by three or four players who either aren't good enough, either aren't buying into the culture. And Pochettino is, I mean, if, if, if Mudrick was an academy player, he wouldn't be getting the team. He no. would not. So be he's playing. one of those three or four. Who would the other kind of? Is it is it more the big spending, big spend players that aren't aren't buying into it? Do you think? I think maybe, but you know, in a way, it's not. I mean, Pochettino and, and Chelsea have all the data, and they're much better at scouting. It's not for me to kind of say this person. You know, Enzo Fernandez could be could become the next Luka Modric next season. But for me, I haven't seen it for 107 million. I look at Modric as a good example when Real Madrid are up against it, like like Chelsea were in the first half an hour yesterday. Modric looks for the ball, goes and gets it, says, I'm in charge here, I'm going to bring this team under control. Fernandez in the first half now, yesterday, just gave the ball away, just pass away, threw ball, given away, hid behind players, didn't want it. And, and okay, offered nothing defensively too. And offered nothing def- defensively either. And I, and I sort of think, if you're going to be the sort of playmaker in this team and you're going to be 107 million worth, you've got to do more than that, you know? And is Sterling the future for, for Chelsea? In my opinion, no. Nicholas Jackson, you know, the, there are lots of, there's sort of five or six players that Pochettino is having to kind of accommodate whilst he's trying to build something. And we all know the financial restrictions that Chelsea have. And, it, and ultimately, it's probably not possible for them to have a clear out. But it reminds me of, of and this is what I wrote in the piece, that it reminds me of, of, of Tottenham's second summer. Pochettino gave them a year and he said, OK, you can all have a chance. And then in the second summer, out went Soldado, out went Capu, out went Paulinho, out went Lennon and Townsend, either because they weren't good enough or because they weren't buying into his culture. And it didn't matter how much Spurs had spent on them. They basically said, OK, we're going to back you with the sales. It seems to me that if Chelsea actually want to kind of take the next step and, and actually make real progress under Pochettino, that's what needs to happen. They need to streamline everything back and say, here's the cluster, we build around them and the rest. They go, but the problem is they can't afford to do it. Because they, I mean, also like if you look, looked at their team, putting Reese James at right back, you're not far away from their their best starting eleven after the billion pound spent here. It, it just constantly amazes me that that's the case. And uh, Alison, do you I, see? I, I, I honestly think we'll. I've said it before. We'll look back at this as one of the most remarkable sort of and catastrophic spending sprees that there's ever been in in the history of football. Alison, on the more positive side for Chelsea fans, do you agree with some of Tom's points about there being potential there for Pochettino? Because you wrote a piece before this match about Pochettino in finals and you know his history at Tottenham and things. Do you see a few seeds of hope? I'm not sure that I see that That much was a long hope. pause as yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. um, 
I think it's I think it is very peculiar that whilst whilst I will accept there were there were there were some good chances created by Chelsea they made far far more errors than the individual Liverpool players did there was an awful lot of giving the ball away um lapses in concentration you might say it was nervousness and they are a young team but the, what's really interesting about this final when you think about the future of both clubs and whether there's you know seeds of hope for Chelsea fans is that that somehow all the youth and inexperience from Liverpool side there weren't there weren't as many errors why why is that how can you and the players that were playing for Chelsea were young, but they had far more experience, and they um, they were starting to look like a team. You know, same same names in the same positions. There was, a, which hasn't been the case for them, but they did look like they were a recognisable team. Now, yeah, this is the Chelsea team, and like Gregor says, this is more or less what you'd expect him to pick first choice. Actually, this is this is this is. This is recognisable. This is a this is a team cost a lot of money, starting to gel. To me, it's worrying that they make so many mistakes and collectively get very introverted very quickly. That that this game was there for the taking, even before the Gravenberch injury, which which stretched Liverpool even further. It was there for the taking for any decent Premier League team that had confidence in themselves and had the ability to look at the. De- how depleted Liverpool were, and to say, right, we can we can be arrogant here. We can be confident. We are the stronger starting eleven. We we have more depth on the bench. We can go for this. And ch- the fact that Chelsea were unable to do that, go for the jugular. It wasn't just in in um, the extra time period either. There were waves of that insecurity. I think during the the fir- the, fir- the first ninety minutes. It's. And that has to come, surely that has to come, just as we're praising Klopp for instilling uh, an ethos that seeps down to the academy so that when the academy boys come through, they know what's expected and they'll fit in well, both in terms of attitude and style of play. It's not It's not filtering through what, I'm not exactly sure what Pochettino wants from them because is he telling them to get, to be conservative and if they have this collective malaise where they become negative and conservative where is it coming from it's i think that's really worrying that we 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 didn't even see we should have seen arrogance from chelsea at wembley and we did not almost like they need a virgil van dyke Uh, finally tom on jürgen klopp obviously a huge part of this story and a huge part of the day what was he like in the press conference afterwards was he full of the joys as he was showing out on the pitch or was he a bit more measured he was quite emotional, I thought. Very emotional, and, and he sort of insisted that it was nothing to do with him. He was quite keen to say, you know, I, I couldn't care less about my legacy. It's not because this might be my last appearance at Wembley. But I felt like there was a, a real sense of emotion for him, you know. And and he said it was his most special trophy of his career. And you know, he's won I don't know fifteen on or something, you know. And and he used to think, well, Carabao Cup, you know, compared to some of the other ones. But I can kind of see that, you know. I think he really felt that because of the. The kids, I think he felt this was a real sort of club trophy, you know, that it was, he mentioned the staff and the kids. And, okay, we hear this in, in, in a lot of kind of victory speeches, but I really think he meant it, that this was something for the academy. It was for the for the kind of the fans and the, the sort of people of Liverpool. And, and 
he was emotional um yeah i mean he was uh, it surprised me actually he looked kind of exhausted and he kept on telling people that they didn't have to ask more questions because he'd already asked mm-hmm. answered a lot but um yeah i mean i guess this is the kind of the beginning of the kind of clock farewell tour it could be a quadruple um maybe uh but I think it was. I think it was a, a very special win for him. You know, you could sense that in the way he was talking. Definitely, it won't be the last time we discuss the Jurgen Klopp farewell tour on this podcast this season. So we're going to move on. Um, and before that thrilling Carabao Cup final, there was an equally thrilling game. I jest between Wolves and Sheffield United. So thrilling, in fact, that I'm only going to ask one question about it, and that's to you, Gregor Robertson. And it's about <laughs> scrapping teammates, uh, Souza and Robinson having a little, a little, uh, a little tete-a-tete, should we say? Um, and all I want to know is, give, give us the ruling. Does this show anything? Does this mean anything? Does this sum up Sheffield United's season? Or is it actually just completely fine for two footballers to have a go at each other on the pitch? I don't think it means that much. I think Chris Wilder said it. He said it happens three or four times a year in training or in the dressing room. When it happens on the pitch, it obviously underlines the sense of frustration that they're feeling and it's a miserable, miserable season for Sheffield United. That's why it's relatively rare. Um, But I don't think it actually means anything. Another good win for Wolves fans um, and they climb up the table. But we're going to move on as well because I just want to finish part one with uh, a bit of insight into how the things work on the desk between editors and writers. So all these guys work incredibly hard over the weekend and go to matches on Saturdays and Sundays. And if you're at a match on a Saturday and if, like me, you're in charge on the Sunday, you wait with bated breath for the emails and calls to come in from our writers. What's their idea going to be? What they're going to talk about for their piece the following day? And an email dropped into my inbox at quarter past 11 on Saturday night. Hi Tom, just back from the Vitality, full of Vitality ofs. I think we know who this is from, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) A piece on Pep, oh my god, Guardiola and how he said facing Brentford in midweek was like a trip to the dentist without anaesthetic. Alison Rudd. Deal. (laughs) Deal. 800 words, please. Tell us more about Pep and his trip to the dentist. Uh, Well, I I mean, the man's I, he's, I find him very hard to... I mean, he, he made it clear, didn't he, quite recently, he thinks journalists aren't really up to much. Mm. <laughs> I have a better life than you, he said. So is that, but asked. is that not more like the kind of the fun of what you know Tom was having with Jürgen Klopp yesterday? Or is it a different thing, do you think? I just think he genuinely thinks we're pretty rubbish, to be honest. He sat facing the media. Uh, they'd got to within a point of Liverpool, most managers in that situation would want to convey this sense of, look out Liverpool, we're right on your tail and have some element of, I don't know, some glint in their eye, something. He looked very, very bored to be there. He spent the entire time watching the TV on the wall because Arsenal were playing, which I think is bad manners, actually. If you're talking to someone, you should be looking at them. And uh, and then I concluded his mood was partly because... Uh, his team, whilst being, you know, superior as normal, we're quite lucky that Bournemouth didn't have anyone who could score and because Bournemouth were very brave and played very well. But partly because I assumed he really didn't enjoy having played Brentford on Tuesday night and he said it was like going to the dentist, a trip to the dentist without anaesthetic, which is a huge compliment to Brentford and I hope they absorb that and go they on and win every game. Compliments. They do. I mean, managers hate playing them. Klopp hates, Klopp Klopp hates that, playing yeah. them. Um but they're not getting the, the points despite making it feel like a trip to the dentist. But um, I, 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 and it, so it boiled down to the gripe being that um, he's got too many games to play. Um, but, you know, successful teams do. I can only assume it, he, he must have had all his wisdom teeth out. Would you, Tom, you agree with that? Pep Guardiola in press conferences? 
Yeah, I or does he just not like Alisson? I still think, yeah, I think he doesn't like Alisson, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Uh, but I think uh, managers tend to kind of divide into two. I, I either think they think that journalists are just a complete waste of time and therefore every question just needs to be kind of battered away as quickly as possible. Or they sort of think that journalists do know stuff and therefore they're kind of a bit suspicious and wary of them. Like, it, And I sort of think this sort of new wave of like Arteta is like this as well, right? In press conferences, you ask him a question, he sort of immediately kind of gives little side eyes if what what on earth are you talking about you know and then he gives you sort of eight words and then wants to get on to the next one so he's from the pep school he's from the pep school yeah right. i think and then there's sort of other managers who are more kind of wary like Moyes, i think you know he sort of suspects you maybe know stuff and, and as a result he's a bit more wary <laughs> so whereas pep just thinks you know nothing you know right. Moyes can be really old school too like when sometimes when you kind of shift to the from the broadcast to the newspaper section you're like I've been when I was doing the two, the European. So just to explain that season. for listeners, right? It's broken into two sections. Yeah, so, yeah, the, so there's the, the TV people. Yeah, there's fil- it's filmed and it's all quite formal. And then afterwards, there's there's like an embargoed section for 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 the written press. And sometimes Moyes will like sit on a table and like everyone surrounds him and he kind of holds court and he looks like he enjoys himself. So he's quite old school as well, but he can flip from one to the other. And the one thing I'd say about Pep is the fact that he looks like he hates it so much means that on the occasions when he really says something like impactful it's double impactful you know like he's when he's really passionate or he says i love my team today or or when he says the opposite he said that last season remember this is not the team i i know and you're just like wow so uh, i think you just got to take the rough with the smooth these are all different characters and how many how many how many like commitments how much how much would people want of pep's time it must be exhausting like jürgen klopp said the same i think this member went to the game at the start of the season and he had, I think, he had fourteen broadcast, individual broadcast interviews mm. before he even got to the written press. Mm. My God! So yeah, I, I don't blame them sometimes, and and every three days. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm sure, but some, some managers do manage to pull off that sense that they're not bored who, out their who, skulls. Who does? Who have you had in your career that you've always thought, oh, he's he's giving me giving me the respect of me doing my job? Well, you, as a journalist. The managers that always stand out are the ones who, no matter what the question is, they will always answer it and answer it properly. So um, Arsene Wenger, didn't matter how bonkers the question was, how left field the question was, he would always give a full and proper answer. He might sound like he wasn't very entertained, but his, his actual words were thought through and intelligent. Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank's amazing like that, yeah. Always, yeah. always. Like, and and, and we'll really often say, thoughtful. oh, good question, good question. Yeah, often re- like really, really thoughtful answers. Oh, that's nice. Maybe I should start that. Good answer. Well done, everyone. <laughs> uh, there you go. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little insight into the journalistic pra- practices, listeners. Um, if you've got views on the pod, and I know lots of you do, rest assured, lots of your excellent ideas are in the pipeline for quiet weeks to come. But do keep them coming. Tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, we're talking Crystal Palace and wondering what's the point of Anthony. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and today I'm joined by Alison Rudd, Tom Allnut and Gregor Robertson. Now, for Manchester United fans, it all looked so bloody good. Four wins on the bounce, talk of a top four charge, Rasmus Hoyland in the goals and looking great and even a Thursday episode of the Game Podcast full of praise for the ambition of Jim Ratcliffe and the team's recent form. Which pleased listener Barry Lucas so much who got in touch to say, I loved listening to you talk about Manchester United in a positive way. Sorry, Barry, switch off now, because we've got a defeat against Fulham to bring you back down to earth, which I'd, I'd say that narrative of what I just outlined and then losing at home to Fulham is exactly where Manchester United are <laughs> at the moment. So that kind of sums up their problems. But I wanted to discuss um, Paul Hurst's piece today, which you can read on the Times website, which has got, I would say, a very good headline. And I say that not because I did it myself, but well done <laughs> to our production team. 85 million, 55 seconds, one touch. What is the point of Anthony. Now, Gregor Robertson, I'm going to come to you because old Anthony does lead us back to Eric Ten Hag and criticisms of him and is a man you've defended, not Anthony, Eric Ten Hag. It doesn't look great when you're kind of depleted and Rasmus Hoyland, as we say, in great form, is then injured and you don't turn to your second most expensive signing ever. Yeah, like, look, uh, first of all, I also think it's slightly harsh that we're talking about Anthony when he had one touch and Man United got beat. But the point is, he should have had more. <laughs> the point is, of Paul Hurst's piece, is that he should have been on the, st- the start yeah, and, yeah. you know, your, your, your leader. You know, we've talked this podcast about oh, whether now- you've got leaders and whether you've got overpaid flops, and I think we know which category well, yeah, he's heading he is, towards. Yes, he yes. And look, he's also said he's been affected by some of the stuff that's going on off the pitch. Um, it's also like we've said it before it's just indicative of the mess that Manchester United have been in for so long that this is also going to be a stick to beat Ten Hag with because he's very much a Ten Hag signing and look that's the thing that all Manchester United fans can hope well, there's just going to be no more of moving forward it's not going to be a decision that, that, that kind of rests with the manager and the manager alone there's going to be some more joined up thinking going on but they have been they are now shackled with some really expensive looking flops and it's very hard to see a way out of it for, for Anthony, yeah. like a positive way out of it. You could even you could in theory see Jaden Sancho returning, and maybe under a new manager flourishing. Mm. But there's just been very very little to suggest that Anthony was worth even half the money that that Manchester United spent on. Well, just as also to make a point that we're not the only ones critical of Manchester United on this podcast. Chris Wright on the Times website in the comments section underneath Paul Hurst's piece. This is Sir Jim's number one priority. Sort out and get rid of the overpaid, overpriced dross. As it is clear that Ten Hag wanted Anthony, don't allow him to any final choice on future transfers. That's if he has a future at all. And that was part of our conversation on Thursday, wasn't it, Gregor, where you and James Gearbrand in particular cheekily hinted that maybe Jim Ratcliffe would be thinking about other managers. Thomas Tuchel was mentioned. Tom, I wanted to get your 
take on that idea because this defeat does heap the pressure back on Eric Ten Hag, doesn't it? We, we we all got excited. We all thought they might be charging to the top four. This puts the pressure and the spotlight back on him. Yeah, it does. It was interesting. I was in Amsterdam two or three weeks ago to uh, check in on Jordan Henderson's debut. And although mainly I was asking people about Henderson, I did sort of just for curiosity really speak to some people about what they thought about the sort of Ten Hag situation and Anthony. And and their view was was that basically Ajax couldn't believe the amount of money that Man United to pay for him. I mean, they, they sort of said, yeah, he's a talented player and he showed some good signs, but he was sort of in a group of some players that may or may not go to a big Premier League club. Like, there was no sense that he was going to be worth that amount of money. And the other thing that people sort of said was that with Ten Hag, although they rate him very highly in Amsterdam, they did say that the one thing with Ten Hag was that he was always quite clearly a very good coach, you know, a very good sort of pragmatic mind who was very focused on the things that he did very well, his, his small details and his kind of his kind of areas of interest, they sort of said, you know, he was, he was very good on. But at Ajax at that point, not so much now, but three or four years ago, Ajax had a very good kind of system club where everyone knew their roles, they had, you know, good sporting director, etc., and it seems to me now that the Anthony question is, is kind of linked to this, where ultimately if you give maybe Ten Hag more authority and, and power than perhaps he deserves, or at least is, can, can manage, then maybe that's not his area of strength, you know? And, and that's where these two things kind of combine almost. I mean, I think if Ten Hag was in a, in a club where everything was right, if you put Ten Hag at Manchester City, for example, I think he would probably be, do a pretty good job. You know, he knows how to manage a team, you know, and he knows how to create a decent style of play. And, but if you ask him to do more than that, you know, then, then no. So I think what they have to decide in the summer is, are they going to kind of build this thing around a manager or are they going to build the off-field first and then slot in a coach? And if they're going to do the second thing and they believe in that enough, then actually Ten Hag I don't think is a bad choice. You know, if you look around Europe, there aren't, you know, loads of really dynamic up-and-coming coaches that have a better record than Ten Hag. But if they think they need a manager with a bit more authority and charisma who's actually going to bring through, you know, some of that other stuff off the field, almost the reverse engineering, then they're going to need someone else. And maybe that's where someone like Tuchel will come in. But this summer's going to be complicated. The managerial market is is going to be pretty hot. You know, you've got Bayern looking, you've got Liverpool looking, uh, Barcelona looking. Are Manchester United ahead of those three these days? I mean... I don't know. They're not ahead of Bayern. In my, if you were, if you were an up and coming manager, I don't think they'd be ahead of Bayern. They're not definitely not ahead of Liverpool. Barcelona have sort of had their own obvious problems, but you know they might have to take the kind of third or fourth pick, not the first. Alison, what it's, do you make of? Well, it's not looking good for Ten Hag, uh, precisely for that reason that he came in deliberately with a lot of authority. Do you, if you remember when he came in, it was here's a man who's got. Um, the strength of character to cope with all the off-field problems at Old Trafford. It's, it's, it's not, there's a lot going wrong there. We need a very strong individual. And he was given the power to have this say in transfers and the running of the the, the, the entire club. He, he, he was more than just a, a technical coach, which seemed odd given that's exactly what he was good at, was being a technical coach. And so now... You've solved those off-field problems in theory with the arrival of um, the Radcliffe Consortium. So you, why would they stick with someone who was only appointed to cope with the problems they now themselves think they should solve? It doesn't make any sense at all. And I think um, it's just so interesting. I'm sure it was like almost Freudian that you mentioned the word charisma because he just... There was a point in commentary for the game against Fulham where I, I can't remember who was commentating, but the camera panned to Ten Hag and the commentator said, 
oh, Ten Hag looks furious. And I thought, he looked, he looked exactly the same 20 minutes earlier. And in, in, in the game they won, you know, he, he looks exactly the same. Like, he doesn't project any sense of connection between him and the players that if they, if they wanted to look towards the bench for some encouragement, they're not going to get any. He does. They, it's so. It's. It's. I, if I was Sir Jim, I would be thinking. I. I just want a different. A different type of manager. If you were Sir Jim Radcliffe, taking over the club. When did he join? Two years ago. Whatever. Ten Hag. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at that point in history, and you were looking for a new head coach to fit into your new sort of vision. He might have been the man, but there's too much water. Too much water. Sometimes passes under the bridge, mm. and everything. You know, he has history with the players. He has quite a lot of kind of the same sort of peaks and troughs that Manchester United have endured for for many many years. He's not he's he's not really done anything to to change that. So, um, I, yeah, I, I'd be increasingly I'd be surprised to see him survive past. The but summer. well done, Fulham. Well, exactly. I'm, you, you jumped in before the every podcast host catchphrase. We have to mention Fulham. <laughs> we have to mention slightly smaller team beating big team away because as much as this sums up Manchester United season, this very much they did not have Palinia, their best player, but they wanted it more, according to Calvin Bassey. They did not have <laughs> William, arguably also their best player, and they did not have uh, Jimenez, that arguably their best striker. I mean, they were they were bereft. I, I often worry about Fulham without Paulinho. What will they be? Because he's he's so phenomenal. And Will, William is, is that dashing energy, even though he's very old. He just dashes everywhere and upsets defenders. They're, and they were without them. And yet they still, through ah, confidence, knowing their system, just, pl- I mean, they, sh- they should have won this by four or five goals. It was... It was Excellent Amazing winner. that they weren't. <laughs> Excellent winner ahead. by Iwobi as well, wasn't yeah. it? Like pure composure. And Muniz is a great is a great story. He's, and he he's, started to he, come good. Yeah. He's really emerging as like he had a disastrous loan spell at Middlesbrough last season. Uh, you know, all the time that Fulham have needed a striker, they kind of not really want to look at him. <laughs> and now he's come in, and it's not just the fact that he scored some goals. He's he's a really kind of bustling, hard working difficult to play against sort of centre forward I think uh, watched Fulham last week and I thought he was brilliant um, so yeah I think he's a really good story and obviously you know Jimenez looked like he was going to be a really good story stepping into finally 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 return to some some of the form that he, he had before he fractured his skull then he then he, he got an injury and now Muniz is stepping up so they've actually got some good attacking options now Iwobi is a brilliant player you watch Iwobi and you think if he'd stuck around at Arsenal he'd at his best, there's no reason why he can he can be a player that they would have used, continue to use. I honestly think I just for full context, I once said to my friends that I thought he was a great signing and good value when he moved to Everton, and they literally never let me forget it. And so when Alex Iwobi does anything good, it's fantastic. I, know I will people, just yeah, say I didn't, te- I didn't even tee you up for that. I didn't even people tee you up for people that. will think I'm mad for saying that, but I think I think he's really really versatile and and a major threat when he's at his best. I know it's being at his best has been the issue, and he's look, he, was, he joined a bit of a basket case in Everton, he was playing right wing back. Now he's playing in a sort of more advanced role, and he's he's been outstanding. Excellent point, Gregor. Have that, lads. How do you like me now? <laughs> anyway, moving on, we're talking about managers uh, and big performances and big results at the weekend, and Gregor, you were at Crystal Palace to see a big performance and a big result for a new manager, Oliver Glasner, but it wasn't necessarily the man in the dugout who caught your eye. It was another man on the pitch. Well, he did. I mean, Glasner, I said, I said in the piece, already there's like a clear blueprint. Already? 
Well, what would you say I, that blueprint is? I say already because it was there against Everton, even though he wasn't in the dugout. He was, he'd only been appointed a few, a few hours earlier. He was sitting in the stands watching it. But for the first time in about eighteen months, they played a, a back three, and uh, so it's a three-four-two-one. Uh, the wing backs Mitchell and, and Munoz pushed really high, and I kind of. What do you think of Munoz, by the way? Because I thought he looked like a really good, fun, barreling, almost yeah. sort of like nineties footballer. Absolutely, yeah. He looks like he's more, he's better suited to this than playing in a back four or Tyrick Mitchell. Tyrick Mitchell's great, and you know, I was writing this and reminded that he earned two England caps under Patrick Vieira when he was liberated a little bit more to attack. So there's hope that he will return to some of that form, but he's not as comfortable as, as Munoz. And Munoz, before the sending off, was probably Palace's best attacking player. Um, but the the player who kind of underlined the the, the dawning of a new era was uh, Matthias Fran- uh, Franca, who only played for 24 minutes, but he came on two minutes late. Two minutes after he came on, uh, Chris Richard scored scored the first goal. Five minutes after he came on. He, uh, he linked brilliantly with Mitchell, flashed the ball across, got his first assist for the club, and then another five minutes after that, he went and he ran half length of the pitch, won the penalty that from which Palace scored the third, and he's, you know, he was in a very quiet summer. They're, they're one kind of key signing, and and you know, nineteen year old Brazilian for twenty odd million quid. There was a lot of excitement about him, probably too much expectation put on his shoulders for such a young lad. And he'd only played like, I think I said like ninety-two minutes in substitute appearances before, uh, before he started against Chelsea because they were down to the bare bones recently, and they've not seen much of him. But this was the day that his sort of Palace career took flight, mm. and that coinciding with a new manager's first game, and although Alison may not like to hear this, the sort of suggestion that under Roy Hodgson there was never really a kind of a path to successful first team football for a really a lot of really promising young kids that Palace have yes you can talk about Elise and Eze but they already had a bank of experience and kind of known quality there before they were given their opportunity Palace have a lot of young players who the fans have wanted to see for a long long time and they haven't really been given either the opportunity or a team to sort of flourish in and you know a, a bit more attack minded and I think we're seeing that although this was a a, a sort of organised shape they played much higher up the pitch I know they were playing against 10-man Burnley mm. but they did that against Everton too so I think it's a really positive start really positive first week for Oliver Glasner We were talking about press conference demeanours what was he like to talk to after? He's good, he's really calm and composed and uh, you know can crack, crack a little joke he said before before the game that he's not a magician, he's not David Copperfield and then he was asked about you know he pulled a rabbit out of the hat with his substitute afterwards and he said, no, Adam Morton's probably uh, David Copperfield because he's the one you <laughs> had to pull him off because he looked like he was going to get sent off. So he was like, if he hadn't done that, then... But he Franta also looks like quite a good, good signing. Morton, absolutely. I was thinking about, until he got dragged, I was thinking, there's probably a piece. This, was, this might have been your email in, <laughs> in, the, in the evening. And another, Palace, I've got a really good track record in looking, dipping into the championship... And looking for signing the best players that are there and giving them a platform. And he's actually said that's why he picked Palace. He saw Elise and Eze, and you could even throw uh, Gahey into that, who's played on loan and stuff. He saw how, how they were given a chance 
and that's why he said he agreed to come to Palace. And he's made a really, really good start as well. It's a good job, Palace, I think. You know, there's a lot of upside for a new manager. They've got, yeah. If you kind of come into a new job, what, what, what are the kind of things you, you immediately need to sort of get yourself on side with the fans? You know, he can overturn the style of football almost immediately, you know, and, and that's kind of what happened with Spurs, you know, just the immediate kind of sense, sort of a, a breath of relief almost, you know, yeah. we can see us creating chances. We're, we're, we're trying to win the game suddenly, you know. And the other thing, they've got a, a really good group of young players, you know, and if, if Hodgson wasn't prepared to maybe trust them as much, you know, he, he can get a lot of immediate credit by by putting more trust in them. And, and I think we've said before, this season is, is, is a good season, I think, to for these kind of mid-table clubs to almost roll the dice a bit. And I like the fact Palace now have a new manager. They've got, you know, a few, two or three months now where they can kind of bed him in. He can look at the squad before the summer. And Glasner's pretty demanding in the market. We've seen him before at his previous clubs. He doesn't sort of just roll over and say, OK, I'll work with what I've got. You know, he'll want good signings. And then they can hit next season, and you know they've got a lot of sort of a lot of games under their belt with a new coach. Whereas there are probably two or three teams in the Premier League who are going to be starting from scratch in the summer. Wasn't anybody slightly disappointed that we now don't have the situation where Glasner loses his first four games and they have to phone Roy Hodgson to come <laughs> back for the, the last spurt of the season to save them? It would have been funny. It would have been definitely funny. next season. Probably not funny for Palace fans. Sorry, I should <laughs> no, say. God, no, we've got we've got a lot of colleagues on the sports desk who uh, would definitely not agree with that being funny. And um, we're going to end uh, with a chat about Arsenal. Uh, I was watching this game in a pub, and there was a wonderful, wonderful. To, it was wonderful to watch the whole game because there was a couple sat right in front of the screen, and they were just so excited watching this, and they were kind of shouting, "I knew he was going to score! I told you he was good!" And they're kind of like holding hands and then jumping every time they scored. And it kind of this is what Arsenal have become for their fans they for so long they were quite frustrating and maybe hey maybe they still might not win any trophies but the way they're playing at the minute is so front foot and exciting isn't it Tom the way because this is you know they talk about this um, before the game about having their feathers ruffled by Newcastle in the past and Arteta was saying oh I need to be prepared for the gamesmanship but they just completely smothered them in every sense didn't they yeah they're flying Arsenal you know the last four or five games they've been absolutely brilliant they, they Scoring loads of goals, Saka has just looks transformed. Ever since that that break, what was it in January? Was it where they kind of had a couple of weeks and went off to Dubai, or whatever it was? He's come back and he looks like the real kind of Saka of old. And I think in that kind of sticky period that Arsenal had, there was a real sense that their front two or three players just weren't firing. But they look like they're really singing again now. And I think, I mean, maybe the comparison with Newcastle was a little bit unfair because I don't feel like this this Newcastle at the moment is anything like the Newcastle before. You know that we saw last season with the defence is just. It's folded. They're, no, they're nowhere near as niggly and tough to beat anymore, and that's a you know a separate issue. But I think Arsenal. The only thing with Arsenal is are they peaking too early? You know they're they're kind of <laughs> flying right now in February. I think like you know when's the dip coming? You know, but they've it? had a dip. Maybe they've had their dip. They didn't have the dip. They only had one last season, and it was right at the end. Maybe they had their little pre-Christmas dip, that West Ham defeat, and now they're yeah. just going to fly all the way to the title. Yeah, I mean, I had them as 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 winning the title when we did our what was it our top four predictions or whatever and uh, I think I was the only one and I felt pretty stupid because then they went on that terrible run and I was hoping that no one would read my bit at the bottom of that piece <laughs> <laughs> um, but now I'm feeling more confident I mean I also think it, you know it could suit them just sort of hanging off the shoulder you know in the last kind of last 100 metres last 200 metres I don't think they want to be in front they don't want to be ahead of Liverpool and City and just kind of let the Klopp hype kind of drive you know everything that's going on at Liverpool let the sort of City thing roll and then if they're just kind of in the mix, I think with four or five games to go, then they can they can try and nick it. But they've got some tough games. They still got to go to Spurs, Arsenal. They've got to play away at United. I think they've got to play City, haven't they? So there are still some big games for them to come. But they're right there. I think they're up to nineteen set pieces now. Like that's you told massive. them, mate. You told got, them. If you've got that 
and the best defence in the league have got a chance yeah opens Alison, games up worried to take about the lead if they like you know it can win games for them worried about Arsenal not at all. No. No. <laughs> Although I do, I do, I do think Saliba is close to Virgil. In Interesting. His, his wow, that is high team. praise. Goodness me, Neil, clip that up as well for the future. <laughs> close, um, not that close. Close. Close is pretty good, <laughs> given what you think about Virgil Van Dijk. Uh, Newcastle, Gregor, because it, 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 Tom hinted at it there with some of his kind of descriptions. They're slightly just kind of tailing away a little bit. Is this a worry for Eddie Howe? You know, we're talking about Eric Ten Hag and owners looking at the future and planning for the summer. Is this a bit of a worry? He was obviously they're brilliant last season. This season hasn't been as good, and this performance, as much as Arsenal were brilliant, they, I thought they were dismal. Newcastle in that, particularly in that first half. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that it's the ease with which they're being played through now. It's that's that's kind of striking, uh, and the thing that Eddie Howe and Newcastle need to get back to. Like the number of times I'm, you see a ball played sort of over the top or in behind, and and. Kieran, the, the the back four is no, it used to be such a well regimented yeah. drilled line, you know they would they would repel everything or they would play them offside. Kieran Trippi was, I think for the first for the first or second goal he was like far too deep. There was just there was no there's none of that coherence in the back four. It used to be so settled as well. And it has been chopping and changing this year because of injuries, but there's that, and then just seems to be a lack of protection in front of them as well. So. I, I, I'm still inclined to give Arsenal the credit though, because you're right. The, the word to use is you know, they suffocated them. They just pressed them to death, and any sort of like slightly underhit pass across the back four, or you know, they just player never had the time to take a, take a touch and open up and play forward. It was always just like they were on top of them mm. immediately. Uh, so I think I feel inclined to give most of the credit to Arsenal. Yeah, yeah James has written his piece um, from that match talking about Jorginho and being a bit of an unsung hero. That was a bit of a problem for them at the start of the season, trying to work out how to release Odegaard, work out which of the roles Rice suited best. Do, does it matter, Tom? Can, is, or, do, or should they kind of settle, talking about being in this run, talking about keeping it going, talking about not having a dip? Does it matter? Can that Should they just keep chopping and changing, bringing Jorginho in? Or should he get a consistent run now alongside Rice? No, I mean, I think one of the problems last year was that Arteta had a really settled team and actually he needed to have more rotations, you know, and I, I think that is... Something that Arsenal have, okay, they don't have the depth that I think the City have, probably don't even have the depth that Liverpool have, but I think they do have more options there. And when they signed Rice, the idea was not that he would just sort of be a kind of holding pivot destroyer. They wanted him to be more of a kind of number eight box to box. They had this idea they'd seen what he'd done at West Ham and that he could be a more all round midfielder. And we're seeing that, you know, not just in his kind of goals and assists, but also he's taking set pieces and, you know, he's much more of an all round midfielder. For Jorginho, I mean, we interviewed him must have been in December time I think and it was all about this thing you know that Jorginho can speak loads of languages he kind of like is great with the kids um, not as in the kids it sounds like he's great with his kids great with the young players <laughs> he's a great dad <laughs> <laughs> um, and a real kind of tactical brain like apparently just loves all the kind of stuff that Arteta sort of tells him he's very good on the pitch at, you know understanding things quickly and transmitting that to his teammates and I think there is a role there I mean Jorginho has limitations and no doubt about that and we shouldn't you know, overplay. I think in certain games he, you know, is not suited. But I think as a as a kind of overall club presence at Arsenal, I think he's been really important this season. Yeah, absolutely, definitely an important presence. But speaking of tactics and being tactical geniuses, we're going to finish with a mention for George Elakobi, our friend, our friend on this podcast. And I'm sure if you've listened uh, to Alison Rudd's excellent special episode from last Friday, if you haven't, you've still time. You can still go back and listen to it now. Alison, have you got your shirt ready for tonight against Coventry? <laughs> You're going to be watching on. 
You'll oh, be in I... the director's box, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do hope they. I mean, if you win in life because of the effort you put in, then Maidstone should beat Coventry because I. I was absolutely shocked when George Ellicobi detailed how he'd prepared for Ipswich, and I think I said something like, "Let's just get what." In my written piece, I said, Let, let's get this out of the way. It was not pure luck. They trucked up to Ipswich and hope they'd get lucky. He hired a pitch and he, because they train on 3G uh, at Maidstone. And of course, he goes to Portman Road. It's a grass pitch. So he hired a grass pitch and he measured it out exactly the Portman Road dimensions, um, not as a, a sort of a uh, bit of a joke or something. He wanted his players to know the spaces they'd have to fill when they were defending and what room they'd have in which to attack on the break. He knew it would always be the break and he practised wave after wave of attack because he knew that's what it would be like. He he analysed the uh, Ipswich subs because he knew it would be a second string team that they'd be facing and he created chaos when they were in training because he knew it would be extra hard and they'd all have more than one job. To, every player would have more than one job to do and that is how it unfolded at, uh, at Ipswich. It, the, the players did step up and they did work harder than they'd ever worked before, but he trained them for that. And when they got the breaks, they they capitalised because they were calm under pressure because they'd prepared for it. And let's not forget, you know, this is this is this is a team sixth in the in the pyramid on the rung. You know, they're they're way way down. So if you and he's doing that with players who aren't full time players, it is amazing so he'll have done the same thing he'll have hired a pitch measured out the same dimensions and he will go to Coventry honestly he'll go there as prepared as a team in the National League South could be a win for the grafters hopefully sorry Coventry fans you have to be the bad guys this time good luck to Maidstone Alison Rudd Tom Allnut and Gregor Robson thank you very much for joining me thank you too for listening we'll be back on Thursday maybe discussing a Maidstone win and the rest of the FA Cup action 